There are 340,000 Christian churches in the United States, and most of them have their very own unique style. Christianity in church life in America seems to be very diverse. We assume churches are like ice cream. They come in multiple flavors. But that's not how Jesus sees us. I believe Revelation chapters 2 and 3 teach us that there are really only seven types of churches and seven sorts of members. In chapter 1, Jesus routes his revelation through the Apostle John to seven of the churches in Mediterranean Asia, what is today Western Turkey. That's why we nickname chapters 2 and 3, Talk in Turkey. Don't worry, there's more where that came from. In chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus instructed John, What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, there were other churches in the Asian province, at least a dozen, but Jesus chose to address these seven. So the question arises, why did Jesus select these churches and why are they listed in this order? Well, first, realize that these seven cities were all connected in a horseshoe shape by Roman roads. Historians suggest that these cities were stops on the postal route. Mail came by sea to the port of Ephesus. From there, the Pony Express of the day followed a circuit. They would go north along the coast to Smyrna and then Pergamos. Then the route swung inland, east to Thyatira. Afterwards, it turned south through Sardis and Philadelphia, arriving in Laodicea. All seven cities were within 50 miles of each other. Realize these were cities with actual churches that had real people dealing with real hardships and real blessings. And Jesus writes to each church, a customized letter. You know, in the scriptures, the number seven speaks of spiritual perfection and completion. And I believe these seven churches are a representative sample of all churches at that time, through the ages, even today. There are 340,000 congregations in America, but there are really only seven types of churches and Christians. You can find you, and me and us in these letters. In fact, even the order these letters were delivered is no accident. There was more to it than making it easy on the mailman. The spiritual postage these letters carried was enough to send these letters far, far into the future. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 is a provocative verse. It relays a divine principle. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. In essence, God always keeps us in the loop. He's up front about what he's up to. From creation to Christ, the Old Testament records God's workings and ways. The Gospels recount the ministry of Jesus. Acts is the first 30 years of the church. Revelation is about the end times. But what about the 2,000 years between Acts and now, the Christian era? Has God commented? I've heard it said, a good mailman always keeps you posted. 
And based on Amos chapter 3, verse 7, I believe that God has recorded the church age in advance in these letters. As we study them, you'll see how that each one bears a resemblance to a succeeding era of church history. From Ephesus, the early church, to Smyrna, the church of the second and third centuries, to Pergamos, the Byzantine church, then Thyatira, the papal church of the Middle Ages, on to Sardis and the churches of the Protestant Reformation, through Philadelphia and the great missionary zeal of the 18th and 19th centuries, down to Laodicea, the modern church. You can trace church history through these seven churches. Author Joseph Seiss sums it up. The churches of all time are comprehended in seven. Well, chapter 2 begins. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Chapter 1 told us this was Jesus. The risen and exalted Lord writes a letter to his church. And it's specifically to the angel or the messenger of the churches. Whether that's the pastor or whether it was a literal angel, the point is is that Jesus sees and knows and cares about his church. Jesus walks among the lampstands. That means he hangs out in his church. This is why if you want to be in on what Jesus is up to today, The church is where the action is. Well, Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. The Ephesians were doing a lot right. Serving, sacrificing, enduring. They had spiritual discernment. They had a zero tolerance for falsehood. And yet, despite their sterling resume, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There's a classic country song by Hank Williams. I heard it growing up. My dad always played it. The chorus goes, Well, why don't you love me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn-out shoe? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? What a great song. My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? Yet hear those haunting words. Why don't you love me like you used to do? For this is what the Lord is writing to the church of Ephesus and to us. They had a furnace, but the fire had gone out. Ephesus represents the early church of the apostles. Understand, Christianity was just 60 years old, but already the love of many had grown cold. They lacked passion. What about you? Has your passion for Jesus waned and and diminished over the years? And note how Jesus phrases the problem. It's not that they lost their first love, but that they left their first love. 
If they had lost it, they wouldn't know where to find it. But since they left it, they can trace back and rekindle it. And verse 5 tells us how to revive our first love. The remedy consists of three R's. Remember, repent, and repeat. He says, remember therefore from where you've fallen. Remember that time when you were most passionate about your faith. Recall how it felt for the fire to burn in your heart. Remember, then repent for allowing that flame to ever die out. And then do the first works. Repeat the activities that stoked the fire in the first place and caused you to grow. You remember the Bible study you were interested in. How you worshipped with all your heart. How you prayed passionately. How you fellowshiped with other Christians and even witnessed of your faith. Do those first works and rekindle that flame. Or else I will come to you quickly, Jesus says. And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus warns Ephesus and us that unless we rekindle that passion, he'll put us on the shelf. Our Lord would rather have no witness than a loveless witness. And then he says in verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here's another feather in their cap. They refuse to tolerate bullies. Nicolaitan is a combination of two Greek words, Nike, which means conqueror, and Laos, which means the laity or the common folk. The Nicolaitans were those who conquered the common folk. They lorded it over others. They were proud church members who acted super spiritual as if they were elite Christians. Jesus hated this kind of snobbery, and so should we. The Lord ends this first letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. For believers who recover their first love, God reserves the initial intimacy he intended for us from the beginning. And then in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Today, Smyrna is the city of Izmir, Turkey. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, which was an embalming spice. And thus, the church of Smyrna became synonymous for the persecuted church of the second and third centuries, whose suffering became a pleasant aroma to God. During this period, emperor worship was the chief religion of Rome, and Smyrna was home of the temple of Tiberias. The town was the emperor's birthplace. Yet this church remained true to Jesus, even in the midst of that persecution. They refused to utter, Caesar is Lord. Instead, one by one, they were tossed to the lions or burned at the stake, all the while crying, Jesus is Lord. Between 65 and 312 AD, five million Christians were martyred by Rome. One of its most famous pastors Pastor Polycarp once told his executioners, You threaten fire which burns for an hour and is soon quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of eternal punishment. He was one example of many, many examples of incredible faith. Jesus writes to the church at Smyrna, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. 
Jesus reminds them of his own martyrdom. He was faithful to death, and yet God raised him up. This is Smyrna's hope that God will raise them up too. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. Their faith had cost them. Their property had been confiscated. They were deprived of inheritances and employment because of their faith. Their faith in Jesus had caused an earthly poverty, but poor was not how God saw them. To him, they were rich. Their faithfulness had stored up riches in heaven. And then Jesus says, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Just as the crucifixion of Jesus was a joint venture between Jews and Romans, likewise, the persecution of the early church, Christians who taught God's grace and faith encountered hostility from the synagogues. How ironic, the Jews claimed to be children of God, but in reality, they were tools in the hands of Satan. Yet Jesus says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Notice they would suffer. Suffering was part of God's plan. But don't fear, he says. Verse 10, indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Persecution is often a test of our faith. It's a test. It's only a test. Some scholars take days here to mean periods and identify ten waves of persecution starting with the Emperor Nero from 64 to 68 A.D. and ending with Diocletian in 303 to 312 A.D. But amazingly, whenever the church is persecuted, it only grows stronger. Persecution first purifies, then it multiplies. It was the early church father, Tertullian, who said, The blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. Nothing negative is said of the church at Smyrna. Persecution often knocks the straddlers off the fence. It purifies the church and it makes it more powerful. Jesus' final words to this persecuted church, Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You know, there's a saying, Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Be born again through Jesus by His Spirit. And though you'll die physically, you'll live forever with Jesus. Verse 12 begins a third letter. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Notice in each of these seven letters, Jesus introduces himself in a way that's relevant to that particular church. The problem in Pergamos was compromise. Thus, the cure for this church is the sharp two-edged sword of the Bible, God's Word. Jesus continues, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Ancient Babylon was the seat of paganism. But when the city of Babel fell, the ancient cult with its idols and its priests relocated to Asia Minor and to the city of Pergamos. 
This made Pergamos a tough place to be a Christian. Yet the church there stood strong. Verse 13 tells us, And you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Who this Antipas was, we're not sure. But his faith epitomized this church. They had a bold and brave faith. So far, so good for Pergamos. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Balaam was the ancient Harry Potter. He was a wizard hired by the Moabites to curse Israel. You remember the story. God stopped his curses. Yet Balaam had other tricks up his sleeve. For a fee, he taught the Moabites how to sabotage Israel. He told them what they needed to do was to gather up all the Hooters girls in Moab, throw in the beer kegs, and entice Israel with compromise. If they compromised, God himself would judge them. And this was the downfall of the Pergamos church, compromise. See, they were willing to lay down their life for Christ like Antipas, but they weren't willing to lay down their lusts for Christ. You know anybody like that? Oh, they'll make a bold sacrifice. But living a moral life, a faithful life, day in and day out, that's what they're unwilling to do. The church at Pergamos compromised morally and spiritually, and God considered it infidelity to him. Hey, our purity matters. And impurity is what plagued the Byzantine church. In 312 AD, Emperor Constantine saw a cross in the sky. He heard a voice rise and conquer under this sign, and he was converted to Christianity. He wanted all of Rome to do likewise, and so he meshed pagan practices into Christian worship. In other words, he watered down Christianity to make it more palatable to Roman tastes. And what emerged was a new brand of Christianity that violated faithfulness to the Scripture. Pagan practices like praying for the dead, the veneration of the saints and Mary, extreme unction, purgatory, infant baptism, the celebration of Lent, the use of icons in worship, celibacy of the priest, the office of the Pope. These were all pagan ideas that became Christianized by Constantine and his followers. Tragically, Constantine's strategy did far more harm than good. Christian tradition overshadowed biblical truth. And damage always occurs when Christians compromise. The Satan strategy is the same today as it was in Balaam's day. If you can't beat them, join them. If the devil can't persecute and intimidate the church, he infiltrates and contaminates it from the inside out. Pergamos is a testimony. The church will never win the world by being like the world. We need to be pure. Verse 15 Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You know, prior to King Constantine or Emperor Constantine, churches met in homes. 
and few pastors got paid. But when Constantine legalized Christianity, the church came out in the open, and very quickly a professional clergy developed. Churches gained stature, pastors became privileged, a sense of entitlement replaced servanthood. The Nicolaitans reappeared, and Jesus still hated them. Jesus says to this compromised church, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Boy, there comes a time when Jesus actually fights against his own church. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. The hunger of all true believers is the nourishment of God's word, that hidden manna. He says, and I will give him a white stone. A Roman trial judge would display a black stone to announce a person's guilt, but then a white stone to announce their innocence. Thus, a white stone was an assurance of forgiveness. He says, and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. In other words, believers that don't compromise will have a special intimacy with God. He will give them a white stone name that only he knows. And for some of us, this is going to be a great blessing. Any man who's gone through life with a girl's name, like Sue, or like Sandy is going to greatly appreciate a new name. In heaven, I'm going to be Rocky. <laughs> or Bear. Just call me Bear. Something manly. I'm going to get a new white stone name. Verse 18. And the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. Now Thyatira was the smallest and least important of these city, seven cities. Perhaps the believers there thought that they could slip through the cracks. They were off the grid. But no, Jesus has eyes that are like a piercing flame. He sees all. And brass is a biblical idiom for judgment. Jesus has feet like brass. He's not afraid to put his foot down. He says to the church at Thyatira, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. This was a church with a full slate of service. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Apparently, the compromise sown in Pergamos ripened up the road in Thyatira. You know, it's been said, tolerance is the virtue of the man who has lost his conviction. And tolerance ruled supreme in Thyatira. Oh, you could believe whatever you wanted to believe. In the church at Thyatira, a wicked woman led this church into full-blown idolatry. In the Old Testament, Queen Jezebel was the person who introduced Baal worship into Israel, idolatry. 
Now another Jezebel is added in this church. It seems there was a pagan, pre, a pagan temple in Thyatira run by a priestess, and it was dedicated to all religions. Thus the church there was also proud of its tolerance. But where all gods are worshipped, the one true God is forsaken. Never forget that. This was the problem in Thyatira. And likewise, during the Middle Ages, the seeds of compromise blossomed into full-blown idolatry. Mary of Nazareth went from being a noble example to the mother of God. All kinds of idolatrous notions rose around Mary. Her perpetual virginity, her immaculate conception, her ascension into heaven. Today, Roman Catholicism even considers Mary co-redeemer with Jesus. The idea is blasphemous. Recall Jezebel was the queen who falsely accused Naboth and had him stoned so that she could take his vineyard. And this is what occurred over and over in the Middle Ages. The inquisitions were a tool used by the popes to kill their rivals and confiscate their wealth. During this period, the doctrine of papal infallibility developed. Even the selling of indulgences or divine pardons occurred. Jesus says of this church in verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Thyatira had exhausted the Lord's patience. He says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Notice the Thyatiran church remains today. For Jesus threatens to throw her into great tribulation, judgments that are yet future. Here's a church that will miss the rapture unless it repents of its spineless tolerance of spiritual infidelity. God wants to be supreme. The first commandment still applies. You shall have no other God before me. God wants to be reigned, worshipped supremely. And then verse 23, he says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. In other words, there comes a time when Jesus puts his foot down. There comes a time when gentle Jesus, meek and mild, no longer acts so meek and mild. He puts his foot down. Don't toy with Jesus. Don't pretend he doesn't care. No, what we believe and how we live matters to him. And he's not afraid to say so and demand from us our obedience. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I have put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Though Thyatira represents a corrupt religious system, not all its members had strayed from the truth that's in Christ. A few had held fast. And to me, this proves that it's possible to be a true believer in a heretical church. Though Roman, though Roman Catholicism today has clouded and confused the gospel with many pagan beliefs, the gospel is still present in their doctrine. That's why if you hold fast to the essentials, you will be saved. 
And then verse 26 tells us, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. The morning star appears just before the break of day. And what event occurs prior to the day of the Lord, to his coming judgments? It's the rapture. Here, I believe, Jesus promises the faithful in Thyatira an early exit, that they too will be raptured. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3 begins. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The word Thyatira means continual sacrifice. And this is how Roman Catholicism has distorted communion. The Bible teaches that Jesus was offered on the cross once for all. Yet Catholics believe that the bread and wine are the literal body and blood of Christ. Thus they sacrifice Jesus afresh every time they hold the Mass. It's no accident then that Sardis means escaping ones. For this was the church who followed and recovered biblical truth escaping the Roman heresy. Even today, Rome teaches that grace is not enough. That works are also needed for you to be right with God. They teach that Christ is not enough. That you need the mediation of a priest. They teach that faith is not enough. Participation in the sacraments is also required to gain God's favor. That scripture is not enough. For church tradition is also authoritative. And that The glory of God is not enough, for the church, and namely the Pope, should also share in Christ's glory. Guys, the word Protestant means one who protests. That's why I'm a Protestant. I protest these things. And Sardis, along with the rest of the Protestant church, countered these Roman heresies with five solas. Sola gratia, sola Christos, sola fide. Sola Scriptura, and Sola Dea Gloria, which means grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. This was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation, that Jesus is enough, grace is enough, faith is enough, the Bible is enough, the glory of God is enough. Reformers like Luther and Tyndall and Wesley sparked a spiritual revival in the church. We call it the Protestant Reformation. Yet it's interesting, once these leaders died, the churches they spawned drifted spiritually. They had a name, but they were dead. What's happened today to Lutherans and Episcopalians and Methodists? Jesus says to the church at Sardis, You have a name that you are alive but you are dead. Today, not all, but many mainline Protestant groups continue to carry the name of a great founder, but they know nothing of his zeal and his courage and his passion. You know, it's been said, God's work begins as a movement. 
but it quickly becomes a machine. It then turns into a monument and then ends up a memorial. This is what had happened to Sardis. It had a glorious reputation, but the church was dead. And then verse 2, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. The Reformation rescued key doctrines, but it didn't go far enough. Jesus rebukes them, For I have not found your works perfect, that is, complete before God. Sardis had a stellar beginning, but it didn't continue and press on. Jesus says to them, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. One of the mistakes the Reformers made was their failure to rethink their view of the end times in light of Scripture. Luther and his contemporaries carried over Roman Catholic eschatology. Thus, they had a little expectancy of the Lord's soon return. This is why Jesus challenges Sardis to not only hold fast and repent, but to watch. Be ready for the coming of Christ. And then he says in verse 4, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And notice the possibility here. It is possible to have your name blotted out of the book of life. In short, a good start isn't enough. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, you need to continue in your faith. Let's let's not just have a name that we're alive. Let's go further and let's walk worthy of our calling and put on the righteousness of God. Verse 6 wraps up this fifth letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Philadelphia is the Greek word for brotherly love. And this is what should characterize every church. Philadelphia was on a major highway connecting Europe and Asia. Beyond it were the uncivilized places and people. The city was built by men who wanted it to be a launching pad for the Hellenization of Asia. From this city, Greek language and Greek customs and Greek religion could be exported eastward to the uncultured masses. And it's interesting that the Christians living in Philadelphia also adopted a missionary mindset. What made the city a bridge for the spread of Greek culture also made it suitable for the preaching and spreading of the gospel. The church of Philadelphia was a church on a mission. He says in verse 7, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Jesus introduces himself to this church as the opener of doors. Jesus has keys. He opens the door to God for us. And he opens doors for us to be used by God in the lives of others. He opens doors. Philadelphia was the church of the open door. In church history, Philadelphia represents the great missionary enterprises 
of the 18th and 19th centuries. The great awakenings here in America and England were spurred on by men who walked through the open doors to deliver the gospel. Even today, there are churches that are using new technologies and going new places and reaching new generations, following in the steps of Philadelphia, walking through open doors. I want to be part of that church. But that's not all. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Interestingly, Jesus says nothing negative of this church, yet it was a little church with little strength. You know, apparently it's not a church's size that impresses the Lord, but it's what we do with what we have. Are we faithful? Here Jesus mentions what makes this church great in his eyes. He says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Philadelphia was loyal to both God's living word, Jesus, and his written word, the Bible. What pleases the Lord? When we keep his word and refuse to deny his name. Jesus promises, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Philadelphia was a little church on nobody's radar but God's. Yet Jesus vows to vindicate their loyalty. Their enemies will know of the Lord's love for them. And then Jesus says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Later in Revelation, we'll learn of God's judgments that are coming upon this world. But up front... He tells the faithful church that they'll escape that hour of trial. Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. In the ancient world, you would honor a noteworthy citizen by inscribing their name on a pillar in the local temple. You can find examples all around uh, this in, in uh, western Turkey. And can you think of a greater honor than to have your name on a pillar in heaven? Wow. It goes to those who overcome. And then he says, I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Not only will God write our name in his temple, but he writes his name on us. How wonderful is that? You know, as kids, whenever we went to camp, my mom would write our name in our underwear. It was proof. If we lost, we usually lost our underwear. You know, it gets thrown around and all. And, uh, but your name in your underwear is proof that it belongs to you. This is why God writes his name on us. We belong to him. And then verse 13 says to us once again, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning 
of the creation of God. Not beginning in terms of sequence, but in terms of importance. He's the beginning. He's at the top of the list of the creation of God. The NIV translates it, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is at the top. He's the ruler. Jesus is the amen. That means he's the final word. You say amen after you, somebody says something you agree with. He's the final word. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the reliable word. But he also has the first word. He is the beginning or the king of all creation. You know, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two churches about which Jesus had nothing bad to say. While Laodicea is the one church of which he has nothing good to say. Laodicea means the people rule. Rather than submit to God, this was a church that marched to their own drummer. They might have called Jesus Savior, but he certainly wasn't their Lord. And Jesus judges this church. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Hot coffee's good. You like your coffee hot? Piping hot is how we like our coffee. Iced coffee is a delicacy. Hey, either hot or cold is what you want. But lukewarm, tepid, muted, in between, room temperature, you're going to spit out. Laodicea had two sister cities in the Lycus Valley. Ten miles east of Laodicea was Colossae, which sat by a cold mountain stream. Six miles north of Laodicea was Hierapolis and its hot springs. Today's visitors actually go to Hierapolis and enjoy the thermal waters. The water supply for Laodicea came from both Colossae and Hierapolis. The Roman aqueducts can still be seen today. But by the time the cold water arrived from Colossae, the hot sun had warmed it up. And over the six miles from Heropolis, the hot water had cooled down. Thus, Laodicean water was lukewarm. If you were a visitor and didn't know it, you'd take a sip and you'd, sorry, you'd spit it out. And this was God's reaction to the spiritual temperature of the Christians in Laodicea. They were neither zealous about the things of God, but nor were they rebellious. They were just indifferent. And this is the one thing God doesn't want from us, indifference. They just didn't care. The church was comfortable, passive, easygoing. Rather than turn up the heat for Jesus, they were content with a ho-hum mediocrity. Is that what you're content with? You like just getting by? Are you on fire for Jesus? Do you want to make a difference? Jesus hates lukewarm. He says, I wish you were cold or hot. In other words, go big or go home. He wants you to make a difference. Are you just taking up space? Or do you really care about what God cares about? He says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, 
miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans had been lulled to sleep by material prosperity. They looked at all they had materially and they felt content. But spiritually, they were bankrupt. In God's eyes, they were poor. You recall Smyrna? Smyrna thought they were poor, but God saw them as rich. Laodicea thought they were rich, but God saw them as bankrupt. See how God sees things and how we see things are very different. And Jesus gives Laodicea advice in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. This church needs to clothe itself in Christ, in the things of God, not in the things of this world. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. This region was famous for a powder that treated eye infections. This church needed some spiritual eye powder, some spiritual eye drops to clear up their, their vision. Verse 19 is reassuring. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus rebukes those he loves. He must have loved the church in Laodicea. He rebuked them. That means there's hope if they repent. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. See, here's a verse that's often used to invite unbelievers to come to Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But sadly, it was written to the church. Jesus is knocking on the door of this church because he's on the outside of his own church. He has become a stranger to his own church. Reminds me of the little girl who went home one from church one Sunday afternoon, and she prayed. She said, Dear Jesus, we had a good day at church. I just wish you had been there. All that's missing from some churches is Jesus. Sadly, this may well be the picture of the last church, the modern church, Jesus on the outside looking in. He says, To him who overcomes, who refuses to drop to room temperature, but stays on fire with the Holy Spirit. To him, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord give us spiritual ears that will take heart to these messages to the seven churches. Love Jesus with a first love, a fresh love, a passionate love. Love him in tough times, even when you're persecuted. Love him with a desire to be pure. It matters how we live and what we believe. Love him supremely. Don't toy with other gods. Love Jesus above, and, above all. Love him with an active faith. Don't just be a name. Have some substance. Be alive. Be active. Love him with a sharing faith. Walk through those open doors. And love him enough to let him be Lord.